Is it not going live? Welcome to Peggy's Recovery Corner. This is a recovery podcast where we talk about all things recovery, um, alcoholism, addiction, mental health, anything that's uh, recovery-based. Um, today, I have a very special guest. Her name is Nicole Galvez. Welcome, Nicole. Hi. Nicole's a good old friend. I've known her for many years. We've worked together. We have run in some recovery circles together. And um, what an honor and a privilege to have you here today on the podcast. I've been wanting to do this for quite some time with you. <laughs> so um, so we're going to just go over your, your whole life, your past, You know what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Um, I think you have a very amazingly gnarly story. Um, there's a lot to it. I know a lot about it, but I think we'll learn more about it today. Um, first and foremost, welcome. Thank you. Um, Nicole, so tell me, where where are you? What nationality are you? <laughs> Let's get that out of the way. So my mom is white, which like she's combination of European. Okay. And um, my dad is Spaniard. And okay. we, I have Middle Eastern in my family as well. Middle Eastern too. Okay. And then where were you raised? I was raised, uh, started out in Cerritos and then ended up in the neighborhood in Norwalk. Okay. And from there, it just, I ended up a part of a neighborhood, which I never wanted to be. Okay. But it just kind of happened that way. Mm -hmm. Do you think you had a choice when you were younger to choose not to be part of the neighborhood or was no, it? No, I didn't. Have it was a, just, a, it was you either that or you get your ass kicked. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And we'll get to that in a sec. Cause, but I want to hear more about your childhood. So growing Cerritos, California mm -hmm. is officially Orange County, but like on the border near, yeah. Nor kind of near Norwalk. Right. Yes. Um, any siblings? I have five brothers and two sisters. Okay. And you are the second oldest, second oldest and growing up amongst them in that family system. Was there mom and dad? So the, the dynamic of my family is my mom grew up as a single, uh, I grew up with a single parent home mm -hmm. and my grandparents helped raise us. And like, there was always love in the home. We always got taught morals and values, but it went from that to, as I grew older, I, I had this already developed resentment of as to why my brother and I weren't good enough for my dad. Mm -hmm. So I already had like this complex of inadequacy and inferiority. And what was that? Was your dad, a, was there high expectations from your dad of you guys? No, he went with another woman and started a whole new family. And how old were you when he went and did that? Four. Four years old. Okay. But he was still in your life even after he started his new family? Uh, periodically. Meaning that he would come over or take you guys or what? Um, I guess looking back at it now is when he felt bad enough to come and see us. So there was some kind of guilt that he carried. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what about um, when you ended up in Norwalk? How old were you, were you when you went there? And why I was you about there? 12, 11. No. 11. We got there around 11 and I stayed there until my freshman year of high school. Mm -hmm. And then my mom bought her own place in the city of Bellflower. Okay. So at what point did you start to acclimate to the neighborhood in Norwalk? Oh, when I was 11. 11 years old. And did you get jumped in? Uh, no, not officially then because I was only 11. Mm -hmm. So, but I was doing a lot of their dirty little deeds. Okay. 
willingly because then I felt a part of. Mm -hmm. And so I found a different type of fulfillment and a void that I was missing from my dad. So you were kind of getting love from the neighborhood because that's just the way it is. That yeah. becomes the first family before it becomes. The it second. was definitely the first family. Okay. Um, as you were growing up, what other types of things started to happen to you? Like you want to talk about some so, of the things that you talked, told me. Yeah. So from the age of about eight years old to 12, I was being molested by a family friend's son who was a teenager and um, actually by both her sons. And um, I never told anybody because at that time, it you just don't talk about those things. And not that I question if my mother would have done something about it, but more or less like I was told if I opened my mouth, I was going to get hurt. So I learned to keep secrets really well. So that individual told you that you were going to get hurt? Yeah. And did they say in what way you'd get hurt? Oh, he was going to make sure I was never found. Oh, so kind of like a, like basically he was going to death kill threats. Me. Yeah, yeah, death threats. Okay, so so you just went with it because that's kind of what happened sometimes. Yeah, and like I grew familiar with it, so not knowing anything about that type of um, like emotions or feelings and stuff like that, like the innocence was taken, right? So I went from being a victim to being a willing volunteer. Mm -hmm. And how long did that go on for? Um, five years until you were what age at that 12. point? 12. All right. Wow. That's a long time. A long time for that young too. It can definitely affect you. Um, so by the time you were 12, then what were you doing? Were you, uh, any was, guidance from anybody in life? Uh, the very old school gangsters at in that neighborhood, the OGs. I only hung out with older men mm -hmm. and um, learned to adapt mm -hmm. and took everything that they were taking, teaching me to heart. So like I learned like my first real lesson or my first like sponsor, if you want to say, yeah, from the streets. Yeah. Learning how to steal cars, learning um, what ways to cut the dope, um, learning how to bag it, mm -hmm. learning how to sell it without being suspicious, things like that. So you're stealing cars. Stealing cars. A little GTA action going on. Yes. Did you um, end up getting locked up at a young age? Did you go to juvie? Nope. You got away with stuff in your adolescent period? Mm -hmm. um, were you still in school? Yes. Uh, junior high school, high school, junior high and high school. Did you finish high school? I sure did. I graduated amazing 3.9. <laughs> wow, with all that going on, you are actually still academically academically, inclined. yes. Because I, I've always, I never really had a problem with academics, and I think that's a part of like my obsession and compulsion because, like, feeling always less than I had to be good at something. Mm. Okay, so so you graduated high school, and what happened with your life at that point what were you doing well so by the time i was 15 um my former stepdad uh i woke up with him raping me um or assaulting me so mm -hmm. i uh left home and ended at up 15 at 15 but you still continue going to school I still continue to go to school and who did you go stay with um i went to stay with my actual dad for mm -hmm. a little while did not say why i left i just like I said, I was good at keeping secrets. Mm -hmm. um, 
how I ended up at my dad's house is I got into a fist fight with my mom's ex-husband and she didn't understand what was going on, but mm-hmm. I was always angry as it was mm-hmm. because of what was happening to me from age eight to 12. Right. So like it, at that point, like she just thought I was angry. And so him and I ended up in a fist fight and I left home. Did you think if you would have told your real dad when you went there, did you not tell him because you thought he might do something? Oh, my dad would have killed him. I had a feeling. Yeah. 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 And where did he live? <laughs> what city did he live in at that time? He lived in Norwalk. Oh, he had moved to Norwalk. He was living in Norwalk. Gotcha. So right back to where it all began, mm-hmm. I was. It's a little L.A. girl. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, then what? I graduated high school, but after oh, um, school. Let me, let me back up. During this time. During this time, I'm wh- using. Using. When did using first start? And what you, did you use? So I started drinking at 11. Okay. What did you drink? Beer? Hard stuff? What? Hard stuff. I drank whiskey. Um, any liquor, any type of hard alcohol I could get, that's what I was drinking. Mm-hmm. And um, I started using cocaine and freebasing with the old school dudes because- Freebasing at what age? About 12. Okay. 12 to 13, like 13, 14 years old. And then by that time, I already tried PCP. Was this the 90s? Yes. It's the 90s. Late 90s. Late 90s. Mid-90s, late 90s. Okay. PCP too. Mm -hmm. A little bit of that Sherm stick. And how were you doing that? With cigarettes, joints, what? Dipping dipping cigarettes. Because I started smoking cigarettes at age 14. Okay. So when you did PCP, like, what would that do to you? Oh, man. (laughs) I was out of my fucking mind, man. Like just doing things that I was always taught like never to do. I was doing mm-hmm. like um, stealing more cars. I had no fear. There was no concept of fear, no concept of emotion or remorse. And crazy. There was no consequences either. You weren't getting in trouble. I wasn't that. getting in trouble because I knew how to fly under the radar. I mean, I was taught to cover my tracks, so mm-hmm. that's exactly what I did. And who's going to believe that a 15-year-old is doing that when I was always well-groomed? Mm-hmm. Back to PCP, mm-hmm. what kind of feeling does PCP give an individual? Uh, like the superhuman strength. <laughs> it truly does. It really does. I mean, like I've been pulled out of a tree half naked. Um, it I it makes I, you really hot a lot of times, right? Yeah. Uh, you're always hot. You're, you're ripping off clothes. Paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like your mind is just way ahead of you, and your body's trying to catch up. Right. I mean, it totally whacks you out. Yeah. They used I always to... thought I was being followed or under surveillance. I thought at one point ants were surveilling me, like they were undercovers were sending these robotic ants on right. the tree to so, find me. So major psychosis. Yeah, major psychosis. Uh, they used to call it angel dust back in the 80s and 90s, too. I remember that. Yeah. Um, okay, so as life went on and you got into your young adulthood, like into your 20s, mm-hmm. what were you doing with your life at that point? So, I mean, at that time, I didn't consider myself an addict because the way I was taught was uh, you're only a junkie or an addict if you're shooting up. And at that time, I wasn't shooting up yet. Yet. Yet, <laughs> strongly say yet, and um, and how old were you when you did start shooting up? Twenty-two. And why did you? Um, I was with 
who I thought were friends and I seen them and seeing the effect it had on them and like how it was the dope was hitting them quicker. So I was like, I want to try that mm-hmm. and I can handle it. Like, I just want to try it one time and that'll be it. And the one time turned into two and the two turned into five and the five turned into, I was doing it throughout the day. Hmm. So let me ask you this question. You know, there's a lot of people in recovery circles that say I was born an alcoholic or I was born an addict. Or some people say I wasn't born an alcoholic or an addict. It Mm -hmm. was based off of my circumstances, who I was around and sometimes my trauma or just my influences. Um, Do you think... I mean, the, how long have you been sober now? Almost eight years. Okay. As we go along in sobriety, because I just took 16 years last week. So I think more and more, first of all, I don't believe I was born an addict and an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. I don't. I used to I used to say that because I would hear people in recovery say that. Mm-hmm. But over a period of time, I thought to myself, well, what if I was raised in a different part of the world? Would I have become that type of addict or an addict at all? But really, there was a lot of things that happened to me in my life too, like a lot of trauma. I believe most addicts and alcoholics have a lot of deep rooted trauma, but I, I believe that a lot of times when I was using and drinking in excess was to, um, to numb out and not have to feel or think about the trauma or remember it, although it was always going to be instilled in in the back of my head. So, so when you were, you know, for one, from a, for a person to like mess around with people, like do some PCP or do some freebasing. Like I did the same not PCP. I would never touch that stuff because I saw a movie in high school health class that I was like, whoa, that drug <laughs> is like, that's not something I want to try, but I'll do everything else. So I was freebasing at 16, mm-hmm. um, cocaine and many other things, hallucinogens and weed and all that stuff, got into heroin and things like that in my 20s. But there was always this thought in my head that the reason I want to do more of this is so I can think less of that, like my past. The things that depress me, this brings me out of depression. So when you stop your so-called friends mm-hmm. shooting, what was it, heroin? Mm-hmm. Was there a fear in that moment where you thought, oh, my God, like this is different. Like this is going to be really serious if I put that needle in my body. Or was it just that whole, I don't have any fear. Let's try this too. No fear. No fear. I said, let's do it. Run it. <laughs> Did you think I could become very addicted to this? Did you think it was going to be a one-time thing, or did you not even think about it? I didn't even care. Yeah. At that point, whatever's going to because in my mind, I had a job. I was going to school. Mm -hmm. I was was maintaining my grades Mm -hmm. and paying bills. So to me, it wasn't. It didn't affect me. Right. It wasn't going to affect me. That's what I thought in my head until slowly the grades were dropping. Like at grades in school, like college. In school, yes. Oh, college. so you had finished high school and went to college. Went straight to college, and you were still doing all this other stuff too. Yeah. Um, this is amazing. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's not really normal. I, no, I, it's not. It's not at all. But I'm like, my grandmother is a big influence in my life. So, the funny thing is, I never kept secrets from her. I I was very vague on my details, but I was t- I I would be honest with her and tell her like yeah, I'm doing stuff I'm not supposed to, that you would be very disappointed in. Then what would she say? She's like, well, you know better. Which you did. Which I think I we, did. we all do. We don't, yeah. Because we're raised we, on some we, kind of good fe- we, like we values. We do know as far as that gut instinct where it's like, this is not right. I shouldn't be doing this. Mm-hmm. And versus like, yeah, I don't give any fucks. Gut instinct plus intuition equals possibly 
definitely higher power, at least in absolutely in our I recovery am, world. I definitely have a God in my understanding. I love that. Okay, so so your grades were dropping mm -hmm. as a result of you getting like taking high. it to the next level, getting yeah. high. <clears throat> what were you living during that time? I was living at my mom's house. I went back to my mom's house after in, I graduated. In Norwalk? Uh, Bellflower. Bellflower, which is right next to it. Which by that time, she already, she kind of caught on to like the, well, her ex-husband, my former stepdad is an addict. So she she started seeing like patterns, thing, patterns yeah. and him drinking, bringing drugs in the home. And so she kicked him out and got divorced. Um, by that time, she already had my little brother and sister. And so because he was gone, I decided to come back and live with her. How old were you when you had your first kid? 21. How many kids do you have? I have three. Um, how old is your 20, the first one now? He'll be 17. Okay. And um, what happened when you, so throughout your young adulthood, mm -hmm. your 20s, um, with school, kind of you know being on the decline as far as importance mm -hmm. what then happened were you did you get in trouble um i got arrested one time or detained and then was released which actually the funny part about that time i got detained i actually had no part in any of that that's the one time i had no part so all the other times you got away with murder Oh, yeah, not, not, until not, I didn't. Until you didn't. Invisibly. Yeah. Spirit of the universe works in the mysterious yeah. ways. Uh, yeah, I just really feel like my God kept telling me I keep giving you chances and you keep slapping me in the face until didn't happen anymore. There was chances ran out. Did you ever end up incarcerated? Yes, I did. Jails, institutions, and prison? Mm -hmm. How old were you when you went to jail the first time? Uh... I was actually 28. Did you do drugs in there? Yes. Did you have all three of your kids at that point or not yet? Uh, yeah. By that time, I already had all three kids. When you went to jail, did you end up in prison after? Not that first time. I was only in jail for about 90 days. Swore I was going to stay clean and away from my neighborhood friends. And I was not even out 24 hours and I was high. I'm telling you, isn't it amazing? And I, I totally relate to that. Every time I was locked up, it was like an angel and a devil on two different shoulders. Mm -hmm. The angel would tell me everything good that I need to do. Like, you're going to be a good boy when you get out of here. You're going to walk a straight line. You're not going to hang out with those certain people because you already know those people get in trouble and you're going to get in trouble with them. When you get out of here, you go that way, right? Yep. Like you, this, I tell you, I would get out of jail and do like a ceremonial kiss to the sky and a kiss to the ground and freedom at last. And where's the dealer's house? I need to go over there right now. Yeah. Like I would be high immediately. So the devil always wins. Cause there's always that little voice in our head that says, but you know, you want to get high one more yeah. time. Right. So after going to jail, then what happened that you ended up in prison? Um, <laughs> I got arrested for grand theft auto. Oh, after all these car thefts mm -hmm. throughout your life, they, they finally caught up to you. Yeah. Which is a godsend because if I got arrested for the other things, I'd be still incarcerated. Mm, okay. I won't ask. Um, yeah, I won't talk about that. I don't want you to. It's only for my sponsor. That's right. Yeah. Very good. Between you, your sponsor, and the God. Yeah. Um, 
Plus, that's not really you. That wasn't really you that was doing that no, stuff. That's no, the that facade. Was, that was the facade. And I mean, I was loaded, but it, without making that as an excuse, uh, sometimes you don't get choices on what you get to participate in. Absolutely. So um, I, um, I want to ask you some other things. So when when you went to prison, how long did you go for? A year. Okay. And um, what was like? It was surprising because they wanted to give me eight. Wow. Yeah. Well, did you have a public defender or an attorney? Public defender. Did you, um, where were your kids during that time? With my mom. Okay. So, I, so prior to actually getting uh, incarcerated for the Grand Theft Auto, um, my mom found me wandering the streets, which by that time, like I didn't even look human. Like it was probably 96 pounds. Um and she was driving around the area and I actually, my son, my youngest son, seen me as they were driving by. And I remember turning. Are you talking I, about Aaron? Yes. And um, I, I knew he seen me and I started to cry immediately because that, that, that somewhat hopeful human in me, like, was heartbroken because I knew I couldn't be the mom that I always was at one point. How old were you right then? Um, I was 29. Okay. So he saw you and then what'd you do? Uh, I turned my head because I didn't want them to see me like that. And I remember seeing my mom's car stop in the middle of the street and I just turned because I was so ashamed and the way I looked on just everything. The fact that all the times my mom would call me and I said I was coming and I was right around the corner, but I had to do one more. It was always one more. Do one more what? Shoot up. Get high one Heroin. more time. To get, yeah, and by that time I wasn't even getting high because I was just trying to get well. Mm -hmm. Just kind of even out. Yeah, because the drugs stopped working. When somebody says the drugs stop working, what does that mean? Like they're not really getting you high anymore, but you just you you uh, you need it. Yeah, like, like it, it physically needs, you need it. Your bloodstream needs to have that the drug in it so that you're not kicking. So I'm not throwing up. Yeah. So I'm not shitting on myself. So my bones aren't on fire, and mm -hmm. it feels like my muscles are ripping from my flesh. Right in Farsi, we call it seam keshi. It feels like somebody's taking a wire, a seam, like in Farsi. Yeah. On your bones, like on your, yeah, on your. That's exactly what it feels like. It legs. feels like somebody's taking a jagged edge rock and just scraping your skin off. Yeah, yeah. Did that? What did that drive you to get sober? Yeah. So you were how old? Thirty. I was twenty nine. And then, so then, what happened? Like down the line, what what drove? What brought you into recovery? Prison. And you went back to prison then. No, the, I have only been to prison once. Once, okay. So, um, surprisingly, um, but I always have a yet if I decide to go back out. Um, I went to prison. Actually, it was only like two months later I ended up in prison after that. Oh, after being homeless on the street like that? Mm -hmm. All right. So, that was the one year you did? Mm -hmm. So, you got sober in prison? Mm -hmm. But when you were in prison, was there people getting high? Oh, Yeah. It was all around you? Every day was a fight. Why did you resist? Because I remember when I got arrested, uh, I didn't ever envision myself being like surrounded by eight sheriffs with shotguns pulled out at me and a helicopter over me. And It got that bad? Oh, yeah. It was that bad. It, I mean, it, 
And that was because of stealing the car. Well, they were stealing the car, and then the area I was in, which was, there was a lot of drugs and a lot of activity. I just dropped off a lot, a lot of drugs to somebody, and I was walking back. I wasn't even in the car when I got arrested. The stolen car. The stolen car. Right. And the sheriffs that stopped me are the ones that knew me from the area, which. Uh, way to pay your taxes sure okay so when you um went to prison mm -hmm. did you make a decision the first day you walked in i'm going to stay 100 sober uh or did that come along the way it came along the way like so they don't give you detox medication well that, at least they didn't at that back time. then they didn't they didn't now they do time. Yeah. yeah now they do now they so. just pump it in there yeah. now everybody's on Subutex, even people that don't have yeah, an, to an each opiate their problem. own. I totally respect, yeah. but like I know for me, like I had a hard time. I got Tylenol. Every okay, 12 so hours. you were kicking in prison. I was kicking in prison and very sick, very very sick. And I remember just laying there, and all I said was, "Okay, God, I don't want to get out of prison, but if you could help me live through this, I will make sure I never do it again." And like one of the pivotal moments prior to that is I was in Skid Row by Fifth and San Julian and um, which I was running the streets over there and getting high. I was just assaulted. I've been sex trafficked. And um, I remember bleeding and laying on the floor and I got up and people just kept walking over me and walking past me. Never once did somebody ask me, do you need help? Would you like water? And I remember in that moment thinking, like, if I ever get out of this lifestyle, I will make sure nobody ever feels like they they don't matter. Oh. Wow. When you were in prison, were you introduced to any kind of, like, a community, like sober community? Was there other people sober around you? Uh, No. So you were, like... The only one? Yeah. The whether they were using uh psych meds to get high or they were getting sent happy cards, whatever it was. Happy cards means meth inside of paper, right? Meth or heroin. Yeah. Dipped on the that's dipped in paper and then mm -hmm. they can lick it or they they eat the card. They eat the card, which Literally. will get them high. Mm -hmm. Okay. So sober one year in there. You didn't do anything one time. So you came out having one year of sobriety. Mm -hmm. Now, what did you do then when you got out? So right before I was released, like officially on the one year mark, um, I was offered a program. Do you mind saying which program? Redgate. You went to Redgate? I went to Redgate. So Redgate is in Long Beach and it's an indigent detox, but right. they do have a, a further program. Yes. And you went, Wow. Still considered incarcerated. Um, I wasn't allowed to leave the property. So I finished my time out there. And um, so what is it like AB1? Or they, they'll uh, send former prisoners to come. Yeah. Do if they're eligible, it depends on their charges. So I luckily made the cut because none of my charges that was on paper uh -huh. were violent. What was Redgate like? <laughs> 
I heard, I've heard stories. It's definitely an indigent, but, um, it's no nonsense. It's what right? I, what I needed. Like, yeah. uh, you weren't allowed to talk to the males. If you did, it was three to five conversation in front of a staff member. Um, there was no fraternizing. There was no, uh, politicking in there, which I still did because I still had a lot of bad behaviors. With the conditions that they set, like no fraternization, no mm -hmm. politicking, none of that stuff. If you broke rules, it was it pack your bags and leave, or is there consequences? So depending on the person, I guess, like in my case, it would be back to prison. Oh, so you were looking at prison yeah. time if you, oh, and you're politicking. Yeah. So it was basically like, it wouldn't be just me finishing out the year. I would have to finish out the sentence as far as like what they originally, so I Which got, was with eight I years. Got, a joint suspension. Joint suspension. So I would have finished eight years out in prison. How old were you when you were at Redgate? I just turned 30. How long did you stay there? I stayed there almost nine months. And then what did you do? I went to their sober living. And at first, when they first took the, said they took the ankle monitor off prior to that. Um, and I couldn't wait. I had plans. Like I was like, I'm, I'm not going to go sell drugs, but I'm going to go do other things that I used to do. To make money? To make money. Mm -hmm. And I won't use, and I'll be fine. Mm -hmm. And I remember in the moment of them taking the ankle monitor off, I realized I just had this set doom and fear because I knew I was going to get high. I'm really happy that you're talking about this, and I'll get into it in a second of why I'm happy you're talking about it. Um so what made you overcome the the temptation to go make money in other ways? Um, well, prior to that, I was allowed visits with my kids. Mind you, I hadn't seen my kids. And your mother was bringing your kids to come see you? Yeah. So I, while I was using, I didn't go see them. I would drop off money. I would go drop off diapers. Um, and my mom would say, I don't want your dirty money. And I would feel so insulted because to me, I was like, well, I'm still providing for my kids. And um, that wasn't providing. No. I was taking from somebody else. So um, I, I refused to see him. I refused to have my mom bring them so I can see them while I was locked up because I didn't want them to see me like that. So it had been a very, very long time that I hadn't seen them. And when I got there... That was the first time I seen him. And um, you had a change of heart of what you want to do. I started to. I started to. A little awakening. A little awakening. One of the many spiritual experiences I've had. I love it. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about right there. Mm -hmm. It's the things that really wake us up to the reality of life and what we need to be doing. Yeah. Because um, Aaron. So delicately put, because uh, I used to tell him I was in timeout mm -hmm. instead of incarcerated. Wait. I was in timeout for doing bad medicine. And how old was Aaron at that time? Uh, I think he was like five or six. And I will never forget it. He was like, just keep it real, mom. You were in jail because you were doing drugs. So he was calling you on your shit. Oh, yeah. Good job, Aaron. <laughs> Uh, and I was like, yes, yes, I was. I was doing drugs. 
and I got in trouble for bad stealing medicine. a store. Yeah, bad I was trying to be age appropriate. That's a nice way to dress yeah, it up. Yeah. yeah, and that age appropriate. Yeah, those yeah, five year olds. Five year olds these days are it, as smart as a 30 year old. It's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. So, but you know what? That's what I needed to hear because I'm not a person that sugarcoats anything. I know so you're not. I need it raw and uncut, even if it came from a five year old. I love it. And if it has to take a five year old to convince you that your life wasn't was, working or needs to be changed, then oh yeah. so be it. Let's listen to the five-year-old. Yeah. Especially if a five-year-old is making smarter decisions than us when we're in our active addiction at 30 and 40. Or... Absolutely. So <clears throat> what made you embrace recovery? So by that time, I already had about a year clean, or a little over. But I always say that I was nine months into recovery getting a sponsor. And the reason why I say that is because it is really hard to stay clean and get any type of day, but recovery is a different ball. It's a whole other animal. And like people that go to meetings, you know, they have the cliches, meeting makers make it. That is very true for people that work and live the steps change. Mm -hmm. And so you can bullshit your way through your clean time, mm -hmm. But people that work the recovery and live it mm -hmm. know the difference. I couldn't agree with you more. So, and we know this. Mm -hmm. Like I, although you went to a different organization when it came to recovery, that I like that organization, and I've been part of it. And I, guess <laughs> I really love their readings and all that. Obviously, you know what organization I went to. Uh -huh. um, even though they call themselves not organized, and sometimes they're very unorganized, but. They do have a, a different spiritual path for people of our making, definitely. So um, how long were you sober when I met you? Uh, I think 2017, maybe. So two years. Two years two sober. Years, when I met years. you, uh -huh. and this is what I want to kind of get into now. This is recovery now, right? Yeah. Like when I met you, we vibed. Mm -hmm. It was immediate. Like I saw this girl that had like a pinup girl haircut <laughs> or hairstyle um, that very proudly like wore her recovery on her sleeve. Absolutely. Carrie was there too. Carrie's here today. Um, we we just vibed. I, your recovery was so attractive that I thought more people need to talk to Nicole because Nicole talks the talk, walks the walk, and she's a real one. Like she was. I didn't know. I've interviewed you a couple of times before for some other YouTube stuff uh -huh. and TikTok stuff I've done, but they were just like small pieces. But like today is like the, the real macaroni, like the whole yeah. thing, right? The whole story. So to hear the, the whole way as at, when it started and how it, what it became and who mm -hmm. you were. And like, I, I love without ever stepping foot on Redgate property, just like I, I love organizations like that because if a person can get well in an indigent place, Mm -hmm. They don't need to go to some place in Malibu that that's like, you know, a hundred grand a year. Yeah. I mean, you can't save your face and your ass at the same time. Absolutely. And I don't like, I'm not going to powder anybody's ass. Like uh, if they have a problem with what I say, they can call their fucking sponsor. It's not my problem. Very well. Okay. I like that. I know when we were working together also, we were amongst a lot of people that were helping a lot of people, people mm -hmm. that were sober too. Mm-hmm. And over the years, uh, we watched some of them fall off. Um, not to say like they weren't working a program. It is what it is, right? Yeah. Like they, 
whatever happened to them in the recovery process took them out. Mm-hmm. People that we were very close with, people that ended up overdosing from fentanyl, people that we believed in, people that we like really looked at as people that were helping people. Mm-hmm. And we would never, some of them we never would imagine yeah. that they would overdose and die, but it happens. That's the nature of the beast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is what I wanted to talk about too that's of great importance because obviously <clears throat> I have some homes and in my homes we have different, a men's house, a woman's house, and the women's house. I see a lot of women that come through and they will, they'll look like they're ready for recovery. They'll act like they're ready for recovery. They'll try to get a a get well job and a get well job. Like I think what happens to them sometimes what goes through their head is that the get well job is only paying minimally. Mm -hmm. I know how to make more money. Yeah. That's going to fulfill my, my needs financially. And they'll go after that old lifestyle However, that is without selling drugs. There's other things to sell. Only fans, escorting, all that stuff. And yeah, what ends up happening, it takes them right it. back to relapsing. Mm-hmm. So, when you have you encountered women like that, that do this stuff or have done this stuff, and have you? Yeah. Okay. And what kind of conversation do you have with them about? This? I mean, I've been that person. Yeah. So I I get it. Um, have I had thoughts about it, doing it again? Absolutely. Why not? Like, that's the quickest way I can, like, go and buy my kids with their car and different things. Because it's big money. It is big money. Yeah. But at what price am I willing to pay? Because there's always consequences. And even if the consequence isn't necessarily me relapsing on a substance, I'll lapse on my behavior. See, it starts with the behavior. It doesn't start with the drug. Mm-hmm. It always starts with the behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. The behavior will take you back. Can, yeah. can potentially take you. Can is you the take, high. Yeah. The drug is the solution. Mm-hmm. Temporarily. Temporarily. Right. Um, you recently, I mean, you've had cancer for a while. Mm-hmm. What kind of cancer is it? Ovarian. Okay. And when did it start? Uh, I got diagnosed. Um, in 2018, March of 2018. And is it a cancer? I mean, I know you went through a, a surgical went, procedure recently. Uh huh. So I got diagnosed and started treatments. I dropped a lot of weight. There was a lot of stress at work because everybody kept assuming I relapsed. And um, that added to it because I didn't want to talk about I wasn't ready to talk about it. And especially with certain people, I just... You talked uh, to me about it because I was I, talk, I was a cancer survivor. I talked to you. Yeah. I talked to Tarek. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, you were a few, two of the few that knew, except for, I think, Carrie. I talked to Carrie about it and um, because I didn't trust anybody else to talk about it. Well, I don't blame you. And um, it, it was really bad. And then at one point one of the therapists that worked there, I actually was a patient of his outside of work already. And um, he finally went to my boss and kind of checked him on his, the way they were treating me because he knew what was going on. So Mm -hmm. without uh, breaking my confidentiality, he kind of just hinted like, if you only knew what was really going on, you wouldn't be acting like that. So I dropped, I was dropping weight and, um, I finally 
got pissed off enough when they kept asking me if I was still clean and I did the drug test and kept passing and just like different things. And obviously in my drug test, it showed that I was doing, taking chemo Yeah, and I refused pain meds because I didn't want, I, at that point I was still questioning the motives behind if I, if I really needed the pain meds or not, which I did, but, and I wasn't looking to get high, but I still was kind of iffy on me personally taking them. And mm -hmm. I already spoke to my sponsor about it and I had the meds available. I just didn't use them because I, I didn't want to have to go through that transition of, okay, I'm, every time I'm feeling ache or pain, like, let me take another pill or let me put on a patch. So I left my meds with my sponsor at the time. And I finally got pissed off enough at certain individuals that just continued to come at me, uh, whether it was work or outside of work, it didn't matter. Come at you to say like, you're not sober mm -hmm. or mistreat me. And, um, I finally was like, um, I fucking have cancer. Yeah. Then you like said it. Oh yeah. <clears throat> Very aggressively. I didn't know that you weren't telling other people, but mm -hmm. now I know. Um, and then the surgical procedure that you had now, is there light at the so end of the tunnel and in that sense? I had a sur surgical procedure in April, which removed a very huge tumor behind mm -hmm. my uterus. At the time, we weren't sure if it spread to mm -hmm. my uterus. So um, there was another surgery scheduled. So I I just recently had a hysterectomy. Okay. Mm -hmm. Are you all right? Uh, for today. Today. I love your positive attitude. <laughs> more optimism. More optimism. During all this, because mm -hmm. it's been a lot of years that you've been going through that. Mm -hmm. I was working two full-time jobs and in school full-time. School. Mm -hmm. We want to talk about that. Mm -hmm. So here was this girl that was on skid row, dying, mm -hmm. being walked over. No one was helping her. She goes through a process to go to prison, to go to come out into a program, mm -hmm. to finally like really open her eyes to recovery. Mm -hmm. Probably your kid like gave you that motivation or your kids. And that now sober almost eight years or eight years? I'll be I'll have eight years September 21st. Wonderful. And I know you'll make it. Like I feel very confident that my friend Nicole and I are mm -hmm. on this path together, shoulder to shoulder. Now, you went to school for what? Um, human services psychology. Okay. So and didn't you just finish the top of your class? Yes. I noticed you there was something I saw, it was Dean's list. Yeah. Grade point average? Over 4.0. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. You should be proud of yourself. I, I am because I... Uh, <laughs> Aaron, are you proud of your mom? Good. He, As, he's nodding his head. I know. Um, I'm a part of the Justice Scholars Club, which are for former incarcerated inmates. Does that mean you want to become a psychologist that specializes in helping people that are in the prison system are getting out? Uh, so it, to narrow in, my minor is in um, addiction studies. So I have considered becoming a forensic therapist, which we analyze the person or the patient um, without reading their file. We allow them to tell us our story, and then we base those what they're telling us off the actual factual, like, what was been diagnosed and we just put it together and then formulate a treatment plan and what they, what way would be best to like address the issues. 
powerful. Yeah. So I'm already enrolled <laughs> again for to get an associates in administrative justice because I do want to work with the justice system. The justice system. What a turnaround. Mm -hmm. And even though you have a past record, the justice system would still, I mean, in this day and age, there's miracles that happen. So you can get pardons. Um, I actually did a lengthy process through, it's called New Way of Life Organization. And I just recently got my whole record expunged. It's <laughs> wonderful. Yeah. You're luckier than me. I, when it comes to expungements, due to my status, they don't, I got mine expunged too. There's more I got to do. Oh, yeah. So it, it wasn't looking very hopeful at the time. Mm -hmm. um, the organization I went through is completely free mm -hmm. um, because I have a lot of felonies. I'm a definitely, I'm a felon mm -hmm. or former felon. Um, I have cases out in Orange County. I had cases out in LA County. And I truly believe it's only by God's grace why the judge actually accepted it. Awesome. So I get a lot of phone calls from a lot of parents that have sons and daughters. Mm -hmm. It's when I, I mean, it always hurts my heart to hear that people are running the streets aimlessly in full-blown psychosis because of addiction and whatnot. Um, but when I hear a story like yours, I know whoever's tuning in today, if they are, especially um, on my YouTube channel, uh, a lot of, I just want you to know how much hope there is out there to hear this happened to this individual, my mm -hmm. friend, Nicole, and what, how much she's turned it around. So there's always hope Yeah. by God's grace. I mean, no matter how we look at it, even if you're not a God believer. Yeah. There is something bigger than you that's working for you. You just have to change your perspective. Voltaire said, even if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. Right. Mm -hmm. So I I was a non-God believer or I stopped believing. Like part of me always thought maybe I was agnostic. I was atheist, then agnostic. But I believe by coming into recovery, I, I, I just developed this relationship with a power greater than myself that I comfortably call God now. And I'm very open about talking about it. as much as I used to cringe hearing other people talk about yeah. God in recovery rooms. God saved us. Oh, yeah. God saved you. Mm -hmm. If people were walking over you when you were in Skid Row, mm -hmm. God wasn't. No. God carried us through. No, I, I truly believe like I had a choice till I didn't have a choice. And even then, like those were necessary things that I needed to go through in order to come to where I am today. I love it. Do you have any kind of, before we wrap up, any kind of inspiration or hope that you'd like to put out into the universe or to anybody that's struggling or suffering, say any kind of message? And the biggest thing is learning to tell on yourself. Because if, being in denial of oneself will keep you sick. Your secrets keep you sick. Mm -hmm. Whether you're completely abstinent from any type of drug or alcohol or you're actively using your denial will keep you sick. And it's only until you get honest with yourself that you can be honest with somebody else. My, I couldn't stay clean for my kids mm -hmm. for the life of me. Right. Like after having my son and going down to the car and getting my dope and then plunging it in, you know, like the IV, like who does that shit? I did. You know, I was somebody that used while I was pregnant. That's my truth. So like, but, Did your, and your kids all came out healthy. Amazing. Yeah. 
my my middle son is autistic. He uh, even though I'm I'm been beat up, I've had my throat cut, I've been stabbed multiple times, like like that type of stuff happened while I was pregnant, hmm. right? Um, my second son is a product of rape, and I say that with all the love, but that's my kids are my angels, mm-hmm. you know, like. I don't see it any different. Like they were, they're here because they were meant to be here. Hmm. I had a choice. I could have had an abortion and I chose not to. That's my personal choice. Not everybody has different perceptions and I completely respect it. Yeah. But that was my choice and I chose to keep him. Um, Really, actually, by that time, I really didn't have a choice if I think about it because I didn't find out I was pregnant until I was almost seven months because I was still using and I was dropping weight and nothing like I didn't have any symptoms mm-hmm. of being pregnant really. Um, he was definitely underweight, but still healthy. And I that's not that. my doing at all. No, that's, you know, yeah. Okay. Um, before we close, close out any questions or comments, nothing. Okay. Um, I want to thank you for coming down today. And, thank you for having me. Oh, you're amazing. You're just <laughs> such a good friend. Um, we could do this like over and over again, but yeah. but we will too eventually down the line because mm-hmm. then there's a lot more to talk about. You brought up somebody's name today that I wouldn't like to talk about in future episodes. Absolutely. But um, but everything has its own time and place. Mm-hmm. Um, but I care about you. I love you dearly. You're one of my dearest friends, truly. Like I can tell you anything, and you, you've been able to tell me yeah. anything with no judgment, and we've always been in each other's corners. Yeah. And- I mean, the trippiest part is I'm speaking at out-of-state conventions now. I don't, never would have thought that. I'm not surprised by that. Eight years ago. Are you surprised by that, Carol? <laughs> I remember when you flew out. I'm, I'm actually flying out in September to go speak in Fort Worth, Texas. Because you're a powerful force with a powerful <laughs> message, and you you deserve to go out and carry that message to people and give people hope. You're, you're amazing. Thank you. God is utilizing you just fine. Yeah, as long as I stay humble, I'll be all right. Good. All right, and uh, that is it for today. We will be having some more episodes after the 4th of July with some very great guests. Thank you, Nicole, for coming out today. Thank you. And we're going to sign out. Much love to you all.